welcome to Graphic Policy Radio, the comic podcast for folks who love comics and want to talk about them at greater depth and length. And uh, I'm really excited to have this episode today where we'll be focusing on the new series, Mr. Miracle. Uh, I'm hosting today. My name is Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn. I'm a massive fan of Jack Kirby's Fourth World in particular. And um, this new series, the Mr. Miracle miniseries, is brought to you by Mitch Gerards and Gerard, sorry, and Tom King. Uh, DC Comics is revisiting Jack Kirby's masterpiece, The Fourth World, in a new Mr. Miracle series. And it's, you know, been called by lots of critics the best comic of the year and, you know, a worthy tribute to one of the King of Comics' most personal works. I really wanted to have the opportunity to just have an open and, like, in-depth conversation with a couple of my fellow critics about what we like about the series, what be things we have different kinds of feelings about other than like, um, and uh, really give this work its due because it's a really dense and fascinating comic, really worthy of discussion. Uh, If you haven't begun reading the series yet, uh, I think you should. We'll have a a really brief spoiler-free introduction in the beginning, and then we'll be going into full-on spoiler territory um, because this is the space we're going to be doing real comics analysis here. Uh, but the quick series description is Scott Free is the greatest escape artist that ever lived, so great that he escaped Granny Goodness's gruesome orphanage and the dangers of apocalypse. He traveled across galaxies and set up a new life on Earth with his wife, the former female fury known as Big Barda. Using the stage alter ego of Mr. Miracle, he made a career for himself, showing off his acrobatic escape techniques. He has even caught the attention of the Justice League, which counted on him and Big Barda uh, among its ranks. You might say Scott Free has everything, so why isn't it enough? Mr. Miracle has mastered every illusion, every stunt, pulled off every trick except one. He has never escaped death. Is it possible? Our hero is going to have to kill himself if he wants to find out. And joining me as my guests on this brave venture are two amazing critics who I've been really super excited to join me. I have on join on the show. Uh, Meg Downey is a freelance comics journalist and historian who focuses on superheroes and fandom. You can find her work at CBR, GameSpot Universe, and at DCComics.com. Hello, Meg. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of Meg's podcast as well, which is called Boy Troubles, which mm-hmm. I uh, highly recommend folks subscribe to. It is a podcast for uh, people who are not men to talk about the male characters who we love in popular culture at length. And yeah. I, I feel like I've gotten a, a lot out of listening to it. Thanks. Hopefully it'll be back soon. I plan on resurrecting it. It has been kind of on hiatus for a few months, but... I'm I'm not giving up hope. I've just been really, really busy. <laughs> I, I hear that. I hear that. You've gone freelance, so <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And um and I also think of I also always think of Meg as being, Oh, it's the other person who like was not an older man on the Kirby panel that we were at at yeah. Comic Con. So we have <laughs> yep. I'm like I also <laughs> <laughs> I too am not an older man, and I love Jack Kirby. Isn't that amazing? Um, yeah. It's, so thank you for a, joining me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And also joining me is Anthony Otero. He is a two-time novelist and recent contributor to the Puerto Rico Strong Anthology, which we discussed on the podcast last week, um, which is an amazing fundraiser for Puerto Rico Hurricane Relief. Uh, Anthony is also the newest member of the Black Comics Chat podcast. Hello, Anthony. Hello, everyone. How are you? And, you know, we actually met at New York Comic Con as well because you were on the Latinx and Comics panel and just constantly blowing my mind saying amazing things, which is why I... <laughs> thank you, thank you. Which is why I went out of my way to recruit you for this as well. So 
each of us is kind of coming at this from a little bit of a different situation. Um, you know, I'm, I'm approaching this comic from the standpoint of, uh, you know, someone who is a hardcore Jack Kirby fan, particularly of the fourth world. Um, Big Barda and Mr. Miracle mean an extreme, a, a great deal to me to the point that they are actually on our wedding invitation. My husband happens to look a dead ringer for Scott free, especially with his hair before he got it, before he grew it longer. And, um, we, we like literally for our wedding invitation, we did one of the, one of the images from the uh, wild, wild wedding issue. That was the end of the original musical series in 1972. Um, and they, and they photoshopped Jean Grey's orange hair on top of Barda. And that was me and Frank, <laughs> my husband on our wedding invitation. Um, you know, and I, I, I love Kirby. Like I have Kirby tattoos. I'm like, the, I'm like, I'm coming at it from that. I, I'm not someone who came into this really knowing Tom King's work or Mitch Gerard's work at all. Um, I know that they're, you know, big critical darlings, but uh, they really aren't folks I've read much of. Um, So this was my first introduction. The new Mr. Miracle series is my first real introduction to both of them. Um, And I definitely uh, have been loving the series. You know, I have things that I have concerns about and things that I'm, you know, I don't necessarily know if their analysis is where I sit with the characters, but I really do love the series and I do endorse it. Meg, where are you coming at this from? Oh, man, I'm actually almost not totally the opposite, but I I was a Tom and Mitch loyalist um, coming in for the new series because I actually was on vacation. I was in Paris when the announcement happened. And I was laying, because of course the time was like, time zones were all wonky, of course. And so I'm like laying in bed in like the middle of the night, like checking Twitter. And Tom posted that, like he posted teaser panels of like Scott and Barta's hands or something. And like something about Orion or something that happened, um, you know, just like totally out of context, you know, doing that like promotional thing of like, here's what I'm working on next. And I like sat bolt upright in bed, you know, it was like three in the morning, like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, so, like, I, I mean, I love Kirby and I love comics history specifically. So this series kind of represented, like, the perfect intersection of things that I was excited about. Um, I came to Tom and, and Mitch um, through, well, Tom I, I found at Grayson, um, which was really his, like, first major comics, like, superhero work, because um, I am a Bat Family loyalist. Um, so I, I discovered him through that. And then Tom and Mitch did Sheriff of Babylon together, which is a really amazing, not at all Cape and Cowell book um, about like real world drama. It's about like the Iraq war. It's about Tom's experience as a CIA agent. Um, and so I knew that they're, you know, I knew what their kind of collaboration looked like based on that. And when I saw that they were doing this together, I was like, stop everything. This is going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I did part of Grayson, not part of it. I about it. should know these things, but regardless Tony, how did yeah. you look into this? So, you know, for me, it, it's interesting. I come, I feel like I come through this from like a blank slate. Um, while I have always been aware of, you know, the new gods and dark side and stuff like that, um, I haven't really read much of them. Um, as a kid, I was always very, I don't know, very picky in in what I read. Mm-hmm. So most of my knowledge about Mr. Miracle and and New Gods and Genesis is based on Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, which I'm okay with because I, I think that they, you know, they did a pretty good job in sort of, you know, embodying those characters based on how I'm reading the books now. So um, the characters that I see in the book pretty much coincide with what I know of them through the cartoons. So, um mm-hmm. 
and I've heard of Tom King and the, and the amazing work he's doing with Batman. Uh, mm-hmm. We've talked about this at length on Black Comics Chat, just how amazing uh, Tom King is writing Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I was excited to read this, and um, when I read the first issue, I was like, I'm all in. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited to talk about all this. Yeah, that's great. So I would say from here on out, guys, you now, you're listening to a podcast of people who are telling you to go check out this miracle, um, three different perspectives in this. So go read it. And then when you're done reading it, come back because from here on in, this is a hundred percent spoiler filled podcast. We're going to cover episode <laughs> one through seven, the whole Perfect. way through birth, deaths, explosions, beheadings. And Oh yeah. I mentioned first, I mean, this is it. This is it. You're, you're listening to it. We're all no holds barred. So, so get ready to dive in. Um, <laughs> Getting so let's get started with this. Let's get started with this. Um, yeah. Like Meg, are there things that you feel like a series like this really has to uh, achieve in order to do its duty to to the source material? Does that matter even at all to you? Oh, absolutely. I think. I mean, I I come at I come to like analysis of comics that are you know based on like really seminal works, kind of from a weird place because I I'm of two minds of it. I don't. I don't like the idea that, you know, like there has to be like a definitive interpretation of any one character, especially for superheroes, because I think that stagnates them. So I don't want to be, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to say that like, oh, you know, like King and, and Gareth have to completely replicate exactly what, you know, Kirby was trying to say with Fourth World or with Mr. Miracle, like just like as a series. But I do think, I mean, when you're dealing with characters, from Jack Kirby specifically, I think that there is a density to them that has to be achieved. You know, like there has to be, you can't really just do like a Mr. Miracle story and just have him kind of being like a jokey superhero. And that, like, that just feels mm-hmm. like it's not, it's not necessarily bad. It just doesn't feel like it's, you know, kind of achieving the full breadth of what he can achieve, which is, you know, always a little disappointing when that happens. Um, and so I think that. Tom and Mitch are kind of coming to this story at the right angle. Um, you know, even though it's definitely not, it's not in the same mold as, as maybe the fourth world was originally. It's not the same sort of like sci-fi adventure, um, but it is, it's definitely kind of achieving that density. And I think that density is the most important part. I mean, I was talking with a friend of mine who uh, is new to comics, mm-hmm. more or less about the, um, about the new gods and why I was really mm-hmm. excited to see Ava DuVernay being the director who's going to be doing the directing the new new gods movie. Yeah. And as I, you know, I, I was explaining the significance of the characters, Orion and Scott free and Barda. She just immediately just said, this is some biblical shit. And I was like, yeah. yes, exactly. <laughs> this is some biblical shit. Cause if you're explaining the pact, if you're explaining the pact, which is the origin story really of, you know, how Scott free came to be a, you know, a, a new God who was, who was born on new Genesis, but raised on apocalypse and Orion, who was, you know, literally the son of, of dark side, but was raised by high father on new Genesis mm-hmm. um, because of a, because of the peace, the peace deal that was made between their two planets. Um, you know, that, that is like the most freaking biblical story. And, and the thing that means so much to me 
in terms mm-hmm. of the relationship between Scott and Orion and Barda, and this is the math that I, I'm really struggling with as we as we read this is, you know, with, with Scott and and um, with Scott Free, aka Mr. Miracle, and Orion, aka Orion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're like, his human alias was Orion, like just yep. like it was an Irish name. It's kind of amazing. Um, you know, Kirby is asked. You know, ask it's basically the theory for me is like Kirby gets asked the question: Is is humans' goodness nurture or nature? Is it nature or is it nurture? And Kirby's answer is that humans can be good. Period. He he, he sure. is making the argument here that you know you have Scott Free who has the quote good genes basically quote who is raised in a terrible abusive environment, and with that he goes and he seeks out freedom. You know, he's he's not initially the, the the first hero out there who says he wants to save the world. He first wants to save himself and chooses sure. independence and freedom. And then you have Orion, who is has the the evil genes, but who was raised in the good and nurturing environment. And while Orion still has the bad temper uh, and moods and is bellicose, he's a good person and he's a hero. And he completely tries to sublimate his rage in order to serve the world and like fight against dark side and do what's right. And um, so the answer is both, both, both are good. And then throwing sure. Barda, I mean, Barda has no external reason for being a, a hero who risks everything, uh, risks her position of leadership in order to help fight against dark side. But she does partially mm-hmm. out of love. I mean, and then also because she realizes it's the right thing to do. So this is to me, the, these characters are Kirby's takedown of, um, of the idea that biology is destiny. Sure. And I feel really strongly about that. <laughs> and that's sort of the lens that I've been pushing on um, everything throughout I've been reading this. And, of course, this is stuff that, like, you know, if you're someone who's not coming at it with all this weight in history, might not necessarily be the important part of the, important part of the, of the reading experience for sure. it. And, you know, one of the main things that we're, that we're looking at is we're looking at a story with an unreliable narrator, right? We mm-hmm. have Scott who... To commit attempts to commit suicide in the be, in the beginning of the of the um of the of, of issue one, mm-hmm. and we don't really know you know we we can't know yet exactly like the whole thing is very clearly unreliable narrator. I I want to sort of push off the question of like what do you think is happening towards the end, but um <laughs> definitely I think like a key piece of what we're looking at is something where there is a lot of uncertainty about how we're supposed to read things. And look, we're talking sure. about a. a, a a comic midway through, right? We're like literally in the middle of the arc story arc here. So Anthony, I would want to ask sort of come to you. Like you definitely said you got grabbed from issue one. Like what was it coming at this from there that, that made it attractive to you that got its hooks in you? For me, excuse me, for me, it has a lot to do with his, I feel like his psyche and his conscience are fractured in some way. And we don't know by what, obviously, but and I've always been very attracted to the flawed hero. And I think that um being that he grew up on, you know, apocalypse, you know, I think he has been witness to a lot of things. So I the way I read this book is we're reading it through the lens of his PTSD, of being mm-hmm. an apocalypse, of being this person who has been through so much. You know, and I think one of the things that we never really see with with heroes who, you know, fight the good fight, who, you know, survive death, who survive all this stuff, depending on which arc you read, Mm -hmm. um, you really don't, 
get that sense of, well, how are they doing mentally? And I feel that Scott struggles, you know, with everything that sort of has happened, and he's struggling particularly with the notion of what a god is. Um, and I think it's really messing with his mind. So I think he thinks he knows what it is, but I'm not really sure that he understands that he is trying to escape his own narrative in that sense. You know, I like mm-hmm. when when you start hearing, you know, seeing Dark Side is, for example, you know, we don't know where he's going. You know, and I don't think he knows where he's going. And I think there are panels that sort of have this blurred TV effect, you know, as if the channel is sort of wavy. Um, and I think, again, it's one of those things where his per- either his, perspe- his perspective is changing or the way he views things is just askewed because he may just have, again, issues with everything that has happened to him. So that, that type of narrative, the, the imperfect narrator or the unreliable narrator, is very interesting to me. Because I think in most books you might say, well, I kind of know what's going to happen. I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, I have no idea where this is going. I have no idea. The bantering between him and Barter is amazing. Um, and it just adds to this story of what is happening. You know, so, yeah, that's what drew me. Sure. I, I 100% yeah. agree. Like, I love the idea that you can't tell whether or not, like, Scott's just crazy. Right, right. Like, you can't, you have no idea. Like, I love, like, when, like, Oberyn starts showing up, like, you're like, oh, <laughs> is he just yeah. losing it? Or is it, like, yeah, oh, yeah. like, is this all real? Like, I love that. I absolutely love that about it. How do you guys feel about that sort of visual effect that Gerard uses with the TV sort of look of a golly, you know, the TV tracking and registration glitch? Like, how do you feel about that particular motif that he uses a lot throughout the series? I think it's used very well. And Mm -hmm. I think that if you're someone who's watched TV their entire life, it's, it's unsettling because you just want the picture to be clear. Um, and I think as a writer, I don't know how he's able to communicate with the, with the artist to do that or exactly exactly where it should be. But I, I think it's fascinating. Mm. I think it really adds to the narrative. It's been something that I've I've been trying to focus on. Like when I'm when I like when I analyze Mr. Miracle as a comic, I really try to pay a lot of attention. I probably pay more attention to the art in Mr. Miracle than I do any other comic that I read, which sounds really bad right. when I say it like that. It's like I'm not right. ignoring the art in other comics, but. Um, there's so many little moments, especially when you're working with a comic that's like almost exclusively the nine panel grid where it's like, it's so structured and yet it's so like, there's all these little moments that are completely anti that structure, you know, like they're, they're breaking their own rules, but what does it mean when they do that? You know, like I still, I don't know if I haven't, if I figured that out yet or not, like I want there to be a pattern and there isn't a pattern. And I want there to be, you know, clarity or, like, I want there to be a rhythm to it. And a lot of times those little moments of, like, the bende dots and the, the static and the, you know, the missing panels, they're, they throw me off. And I think that, that's intentional, but it's still, it makes yeah. it really, it makes it a challenge to read, but in, like, a fun way. Like, I'm, I'm never, I'm always engaged in it, which is very, you know, it's super fun and, and tricky. And it also feels like you're getting a lot for your for your money with the comic yeah. book. You know, there, there yeah. are comic books where, you know, they start doing, you know, three or four panels and you're done. 
you right. know, within like two <laughs> minutes, where this one is a constant like nine panels or, or, or maybe sometimes less, but you're getting a lot of stuff in it, sure. you know, so it, it, you, you definitely, it's definitely worth that in, in its weight. Yeah, it's one of those things where there's like a page in the nine panels, like this is my favorite page, like maybe in the whole series. I don't, I think it's an issue two, maybe it's in three. I don't have the book in front of me right now, which is bad on my preparation, but um, where they're talking about Scott and Bart are talking about their relationship to Granny Goodness and they go through Uh and they're, and they're talking about how, like, well, did she love you or did, you know, like, do you think she actually cared about you? And Scott's kind of relating a story about whether or not he believed Granny showed him kindness. And there's right. this moment where the, the page breaks the nine-panel grid and becomes like an eight-panel grid. And there's an extra, like, the panels linked together. And it's this weird moment where, like, why did that happen? Why did that break it? And but then you look at the narration, and it's this moment where Scott's prescribing, like, this totally non-sequitur thing that Granny did for him, like, that she was kind to him. And so it's like his yeah. story is breaking the mold and the page is breaking the mold. And that, that's just so cool. Like, it's just so, like, finding little moments like that, it's just like, ugh, beautiful, perfect. You know, speaking about, like, favorite parts, um, there is this one page. I, it's an issue five. And it really hit me as sort of this biblical moment, even though I don't know if I, – I, I feel like it was meant this, but I, um, I forgot what page it was. But there's a point where um, – you know, Barter and Scott are getting freaky, and uh, she ties into <laughs> the bed, right? Yeah. And it looks like this. The way it's laid out, it looks like like the crucifix. Yeah, it looks yeah like thank he you. Is, okay. that, that, honestly, as a uh, recovering Catholic, that blew my mind. <laughs> I was just True. like, wow. <laughs> yeah, I have issues. I have issues. Crucifix. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Page. Yeah. It's, but it's supposed yeah, to be there. Just, like that's. Yeah. 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 There's like a yeah. lot of different ways to tie. Like, if you weren't supposed to associate that, if you weren't supposed to associate Scott with Jesus, they would have had him tied spread eagle. Like that's right. Just, right. Right. Like that's that. Right. So yes, you're yeah. supposed to see Jesus. This isn't just because of your Catholic upbringing. It's all okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I'm Jewish. I see it too. Okay. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about that scene. I have oh my so God. many feelings. I, you know, with obviously with the world's greatest escape artist, and you, you also see this in how these these were the these were the characters that were referenced so heavily in the Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, of course, right? So right. Okay, guys, go read the book. Whatever. Um, you know, obviously, like you're gonna have there's here you have this gigantic strong woman. She's like seven feet tall and she's solid. And if you're drawing her any other way than that, I will punch you. Um, <laughs> and uh, and her husband is an average average height guy who's muscular but slight right you know mm-hmm. kind of a Jesus right. build if you think about it um and so you know people are going to read into that a certain sexual dynamic which may or may not be real but what is real is he is an escape artist so guess what you know chances are that that, that sexual dynamic is there because he is an right. escape artist <laughs> um so it's like like no guys this isn't about the size difference this is about what he does for a job um like what his superpower is, what his calling in life is. So we here, brought to you by in the year 2017 of our Lord, um, you had the first issue of like that I, I'm aware of. I, I, I haven't read a ton of the non-Jack Kirby 
portrayals of Barda and Scott. Like I read Justice League International in pieces. I enjoy it greatly, yeah. but I haven't read the whole thing. I didn't read the, the their, their separate series with like Booster Gold. I've read some pieces of it, whatever. I'm sure. not an expert at what they did after Jack is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Some awareness, but not full. I think this is the first time there's been like completely like they are having uh, bondage in their sex, like confirmation thing that there's been in the story. And I think comics really shies away from like being explicitly uh, clear when it's talking about sex. I, I think it has inherited oh, yeah. some of the um, comics code hangers on especially where superheroes are concerned so i was sure. really impressed right. that the comics like did that how, how did you guys feel about that sequence oh my god i i opened that like i flip through i'm terrible about reading comics i spoil myself constantly like i i'm not a person who like waits so like i just flip book books open and i think i picked up that book like earlier whenever i was picking up my review copies and like opened it and that was the first page i opened to and was like oh <laughs> All right, cool. You were on the subway. And... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was, like, standing in the DC office, like, oh, okay, cool. Um, but I, I I, love it when anytime a comic has the opportunity to, like, just go for it. Like, don't hedge around it. Like, clearly this is a mature reader's book. Like, if you got through issue one and you didn't think, like, okay, this is, like, this is some real stuff that's going to happen in this book. Like, we're not candy coating it. We're not sugarcoating it. Like, if you're going to show the violence, you can also show the sex. Like, why is one, you know, like, it's, it shouldn't be, right. you know, like, the, the, the sex should be more shocking than the suicide attempts. Like, it's, you know, like, I think that it's great that they're allowed to do both. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, let's be real. They're husband and wife. I mean, mm-hmm. what do you think <laughs> is going to happen? You know what I mean? <laughs> I think that... What it shows for me, and I thought, again, this was a fantastic scene, is his willingness to not escape his love for her. You know what I mean? And I and I think that he even mentions that as well. So, you know, that whole scene with, with him being tied is, it is kind of funny because it's like, okay, well, you know he can escape that, like, right. very easily, but why would he want to? And I think that's <laughs> the difference when we're talking about this this point of the there was this point in the story where she was like, mm. you know, you you're imagining yourself in this box. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And you you and he and he's like, well, maybe, but it's more than the box, you know. Right. So, and I and I think he sees her as something he would never want to escape from. Why would he? Right. Yeah. But I love that little panel in the middle of the grid there where you see his hand kind of coming out <laughs> the corner. So, you know, he just couldn't help himself. He wanted to touch her. And it's, like, so sweet. I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so I, funny. It, it, normally, I'm really glad. Normally I don't, like, really engage with, like, this is me being, like, a loud queer comics analyst. But, like, normally it's really mm-hmm. tricky for me to engage with, like, heterosexual love on the page because it's no I'm just like okay whatever <laughs> like I don't really care um it's you know it's fine but it's not gonna like really hook me but Barda and Scott hook me and it's even like the added layer that I don't I don't usually really enjoy the like trope of like the forbidden heterosexual love in comics where it's like oh well you know they're both coming from these two different places and they really shouldn't be together right. which Scott and Marta kind of have that, not not terribly, but, like, they still, you know, have that, like, almost Romeo and Juliet, sort of, like, they're two people who are on the opposite sides of a very powerful thing that, you know, is, should be pushing them apart, but ends up pushing, pushing them together. But something about the way that they're done is, is so, like, I don't know, self-aware 
of how, you know, like of their circumstances, of how their relationship comes across, of the power dynamics in their relationship, it just sells me on it. It just, it works 100% for me. Absolutely. And I appreciate that you know, I, doesn't always try to do these glamour angles of her. Like, oh, right, yeah. he right, will draw right. a bar from below, which is not right. flattering, but it's hot anyway. And right. It's, right. that's, I, I admire this. Like, you're showing the less flattering angle. You're allowing her body to have weight and heft, and she still looks great. I do have one quibble in, like, I don't know if it's at issue one or two, Barda says, oh, I'm too tall. I do not believe for a fucking minute that Barda thinks she's too tall. Barda can definitely be critical of her appearance because this is something that, like, everyone deals with. I don't think that being too tall would be the thing she would be critical about about her body. Oh, man. But whatever. <laughs> See, I don't know. I I think for, like, I love the idea. I love the dynamic of, of Barda kind of having these insecurities, especially from, that are coming directly from Granny, that, like, she is totally open about the fact that, like, well, Granny said I was too tall, or Granny said this. And it's just, like, as a person who grew up with, like, I don't want to say my, my poor late grandmother, God rest her soul, was like Granny goodness, but I did have a very, like, 1930s depression era passive aggressive like midwestern grandmother <laughs> like i definitely like <laughs> granny goodness is the only villain in comics that scares me because she reminds me wow. of, like, like she terrifies me i hate her um i hear it from a lot of that, people i i, I really do oh i just i can't do it like and she just reminds me so much of like and like you know my grandma in real life meant well obviously but it was just that constant like oh don't worry you'll lose the weight like what okay what are you talking about wow. or like yeah. Oh, or, oh don't worry. Yeah. Oh, do you really think your hair? You, are you going to go back to to blonde soon? Like, whoa. Okay. I don't know. Like, what are you doing? Just that, like, an endless, like, and so, like, when Barter was like, "I'm too tall," I was like, "Ah, uh, okay. Like, that's real. That's too real for me. I don't like this." <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about Granny Goodness because, like, I think that a lot of when Granny Goodness got killed, multiple people emailed me to freak out in my direction. Um, <laughs> I, I, what did you, yeah, what did you guys think about the, uh, that scene and how that was handled and also the choice to, to kill Granny Goodness? Oh, man. It's, 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 hard. it's hard because I'm cynical. I don't really believe anybody's dead until, sure. like, the end of the arc. So I'm not really sure. Um, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any strong feelings about Granny Goodness, um, and at least not as strong as I've been hearing. Um, but I thought it was done it was done well in the sense that, you know, Scott's going to question it, and Bart is like, you know what, fuck it, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, because, you know, I think and she did it for, for him more than, more than anything else. Um, I think what surprised me was the next issue when we find out that she was beheaded. That kind of mm. caught me off guard. That was like, I was like, then I was like, whoa. Like, it just, to me, it was just, it got real, because you don't really mm-hmm. see that. You yeah. Know? So that that's kind of threw me off a little bit, yeah. Yeah, it was, especially in that, in that issue, I think that that was like, it was so surprising to me the way it happened and, like, the constant... I love the motif as much as it makes me like deeply uncomfortable for my own issues or whatever. Like the idea that like Scott is never sure whether or not granny was actually kind to him. Like he was never sure whether or not like granny was actually like doing what she thought was best for him. Even if she was, you know, obviously like torturing him, like she's obviously a horrible person, but like 
did she think that that was what was the best or did she think that she was actually making him stronger or whatever? I love that Scott's uncertainty gets juxtaposed so starkly against Sparta's like absolute certainty. Like, Nope, she was terrible. I don't like this. Like I can't do it. Um, And having it kind of culminate so quickly into that idea that like Scott's going to stand there and listen to her, even though she might be full of shit. But yep. Sparta's just going to be like, nope, here's my, I'm going to take my rod, and we're going to beat her to death right away. I'm like, okay. And this, and this, this probably going to laugh, but this makes me think about my own relationship, how it's one of those things where I'm always unsure, should I listen to this person? And then meanwhile, my fiance yeah. is like, no, no, yeah. this person's trash. No. And I'm like, yeah. but I feel this way. No, you're too empathetic. So it, that's what really got me about that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's... It's hard, too, because, like, I think, I mean, that just it makes you really have to read into the whole unreliable narration aspect of yeah. it, because this isn't a book about Barda's perspective. It's a book about Scott. So when Scott mm-hmm. is not sure whether or not Granny is telling him the truth or whether or not she's doing something, you know, out of the kindness of her heart, quote, unquote, we have to sit with that, too. Cause like, I don't know. I yeah. don't know if, if Barda was right to kill her. I mean, did did she deserve to die? Yeah, probably. But in that moment, was she trying to help? Maybe. Like, I honestly, mm-hmm. probably. Yeah, I mean, she claims to be Dark Side's in, in, in inside. I'm sorry, uh, High Father's inside agent. You know. Yeah. We really don't know. Ugh. So it could have been a mistake. It could have been. I love. I love not knowing though. Like as much as it kind of like provokes that sort of like panic response in me. To not know, I mm-hmm. I kind of love not knowing in this in this instance because I don't think and I mean like like Anthony said I I don't believe that anyone's really gone, especially in this story. Right. Like I don't think anyone's right. like gone forever. So I really think you know kind of putting Granny off the board might have just been like a narrative, you know, move as much right. as it is like an actual like dramatic move that you know she can't have her running around while everything else is happening, but she might. Right. And I think you just. It, Working her in this way just also meant that they had the opportunity to really talk about abuse and yeah. familial abuse, mm-hmm. you know, and yep. so there's a, the, which is such an important theme. So I'm like, yeah, they brought it in for that. I'll tell yeah. you, I, I like completely cried when um, Forager died. <gasps> I am the big, I love Forager. He is such a, an amazing soul and I completely buy and believe the way they handled it, there's always was this problem of the new gods treating the bugs as being yeah. animals, yep. animals that were just barely worthy of recognition. So the fact that, you know, like even Scott, like doesn't really seem to quite treat Forager as having been his equal when he gets vaporized. On his, uh, Scott is upset by it, but you yeah. know, he would be more upset with it had it been, you know, uh, like if it had been a member of the Justice League or something, you know, right. I mean? Scott would yeah. have definitely yeah. been more freaked yeah. out. So that you see, even Scott is like, is they're not quite fully human to him right. either. I thought that was like really brutal and well done. Um, yeah. And having how they had Light Ray emerge out of it. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, uh, that was interesting to me because I I thought to myself, does he, does does Scott really fully understand what's happening? Right. You know, mm. that's why I'm, I, I was like, is, does he really understand? Because I think he, a part of him doesn't fully know what the hell is going on, to be quite honest with you. Right. So, you know, it, it's one of those things. I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't even really know if he's dead. 
Right. Just like he may not really know, is Granny really dead? Like, that's why I, I keep going to this thing, like, maybe he just has PTSD. Maybe he doesn't right. fully understand what's happening. Right. Because I know I don't. Yeah, like, and if, mm. and if he doesn't, if he does, you know, not, if he doesn't fully understand, or even if he does fully understand and just kind of, like, is not able to engage with it on that level. Right, because of right. Own, yeah, like, he might have, yeah. like, he's he's so damaged and wrapped up in himself right now. I mean, for good reason, obviously, but still, like, he can't, it's hard for him to access the sort of empathy he needs to, to see what's going on with other people. Yeah. And I think that that's a really mm-hmm. fascinating, especially with, like, a main character in a cape and cowl book, like having a character yeah. that is not self-aware enough to understand where their heroism needs to happen is really fascinating. Right. And it's really, it's yeah. tragic because it makes him almost complicit in this, you know, this right. horrible war that's going on. Like he's, he's yes. not doing enough, but he right. can't do enough. And that's, you know, like, is there, is there a way to kind of quantify that? Is there a way to still be a hero when you're so, when you have to, look out for yourself first you know like where do those lines get drawn i think it's man uh poor scott <laughs> right and then of course when when orion gives him that test of the the true and the false yeah. you know i think that that really that's when i was really like something's going on with with scott yeah. you know and he's answering questions whether are true that i think to even himself is making him realize maybe he really was you know an accomplice and i think that's why he right. blows up at the end yeah. Oh my God. Gee, that, let's talk about that sequence. That was oof. one of the most challenging sequences. Yeah. Uh, I I still have my Twitter header is still Orion like right after he gets the shit beat out of him like reaching over and taking hilarious. The shirt. I I saw that. that. I saw that. Oh, oh my God. Oh, uh, that that was a great scene. Great that, scene. And I feel like I made my Twitter header Orion like with like from from the fourth world with um with the mother box talking about how he has his moods like yeah. that is my one right now which i feel like i that was not a deliberate response to yours but like it, it <laughs> is though like i sure. i didn't yeah. know i was doing it when i did it but like that is what was happening so yeah sorry. um yeah so like i guess my question is like with the, the, the so orion you know puts him on trial he asks him these series of questions he demands that the answer be either true or false, not I don't know, or no equivocation, and it right. has to be what you believe to be true. We know you don't actually know for sure what is or isn't true. We're asking you what do you believe right. to be true. And it's right. sort of established that this is a trap that they're setting. Like, what, what is the trap that you think that this is for, for Scott? I'd love to hear from you guys. Oh, man. That's a really tough question. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think have to read it like 80 times. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I, I mean, I think, I think the trap, at least thematically, and like, this is like, I'm obsessed with the dynamic between this version of Scott and this version of Orion. I think the trap is really sort of that it's duty. It's, I mean, it's the ability to, it's, I mean, I guess in in a weird way, the trap is empathy. Like you see two different people who have engineered a way to turn off their empathy for two very different reasons. And I think that this Orion is very much like he is fighting a war that he believes that he is, you know, that he has to fight. Like he is, he is acting as high father, not because he really wants to or anything, but because he has to, and because this is, this is the only way he's going to get through it. And this is what he has to do duty bound. Whereas Scott has found a way to turn off his empathy because he can't 
kind of circumvent his own problems. Like he can't get through the issues that he has, you know, with his childhood or, or with anything, which like you can't really blame him for. But when you start questioning that, it becomes a riddle. It becomes really, you know, like there's no, there's no way to like, there's no easy answer and there's no like quick road out, which I think, I mean, that's really esoteric, but I think that that's kind of the trap that is between the two, the two of them is like whether or not you can be, you can do what is right and be true to yourself and remain whole in the process and still come out the other side as the same person. Does that make any sense? That probably doesn't make any sense. I don't know. No, I, I think I, it does. I think it definitely does. No, I think it, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can just say, like, I really feel like if, you know, we, we don't know what mental state this is in or what is even actually happening. Like, if this was just sort of, if this is just Orion and he is not being controlled by the anti-life equation or this isn't just a projection of Orion from, you know, from Scott's perspective because of his trauma. If this is like actually Orion in the, in the traditional format of the comic who is behaving in this super fascist manner, I would be really not okay with that because I think that the, to me, like the point of Orion as a character is that biology isn't destiny. And so if you have Orion actually being the same as Darkseid, then you're making a really deterministic statement. Sure and going against Kirby. But I don't think that that's what's going to happen, but I'm constantly a little bit like on my seat, like, God, I really (laughs) hope that's not where this is going because I can't deal with that. Sure. Um, I think that's kind of why I like that, like the carrot eating panel so much is because I think that was like, even if it's not a projection, like I think it kind of punched through Orion. Like if Orion is actually trying to put on this show, it kind of punched through his drag a little bit. Like he's, he's performing this role that he probably doesn't actually agree with and that, you know, for whatever reason he has kind of, you know, found himself backed into a corner and then that stupid little carrot scene after he gets, you know, like he could have exploded violently back and said he just eats a carrot with ranch on it. Like, Oh, <laughs> like, I think that that was, yeah, let like, me dip it first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I don't know. I I'm really curious to see what happens with Orion soon. Like I really, I'm really anxious about it. I think it's going to be, Whatever happens, like I'm, I'm down for whatever, but I'm nervous about it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's obviously been the biggest game changer for the characters is what we see in issue seven, where Big Barda has a baby, and um, man, I am usually super against characters having babies, but I'm very pro this character, this particular. Like, I, I just. Mm-hmm. With the, you know what I mean? Like my mm-hmm. my immediate reaction usually is like, what makes you think all these fucking women want babies? Fuck you, go to go away, leave me alone. You're sexist. But I'm like, <laughs> no, Barda, Barda and Scott, like I, it feels very much like a natural extension of their relationship, and the fact that they're having a child is very much a rejection of apocalypse and apocalypse's system that they right. that they sought freedom for. You know, I, I, at first I was like, well, why wouldn't Barda have discussed this with Scott before going and being knocked up? Like, this mm-hmm. was like a thing that they should discuss a couple. But then I had to remind myself, like, Barda is super compartmentalized. And just because that's not how I think people should 
deal with having a baby doesn't mean that that's not how Barbara how Barta would just go and right. have a baby. Like the whole the whole sequence from issue six where they're talking about creating space in the apartment and she doesn't straight up say like I'm having a pregnant yep. I'm pregnant and we're definitely having this baby. Um, <laughs> right. You know, is it actually was like yeah, no, that 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 feels about right to me. The delivery sequence, I I'm thankful that for once you see a comic that kind of portrays the stakes of childbirth and treats it like seriously as a thing that's dangerous and frightening, which is real. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not claiming to be an expert. I don't have any kids, but I, I, um, I think about this shit a lot because a lot of my friends are going through that right now. And um, mm-hmm. I think it sounds like a horror movie. Uh, yeah. So I think this movie kind of acknowledges that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. sorry, this uh, issue acknowledges that. But it's, but it is like a movie though. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I view this, this, series like a honestly like a, like a romantic comedy in many ways because mm-hmm. you know they're they're basically they gutted a fish used its entrails to go across and they're just talking yeah. about moving furniture you know that is hilarious i i honestly was dying i thought it was hilariously well done you know yeah. what i mean and I, and I think it just shows that the ease in which they can do what they're doing and still talk about well you know what are you doing tomorrow or you know <laughs> let's talk about you know putting wallpaper up in a room that may not exist. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's yeah. so well done. And again, in the nine panel spaces um, that, yeah, I can see like this in a movie. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and I mean, especially like in the birth sequence, like the fact that it was very high stakes yeah. and like, it was really gross yeah. and like scary, but it's also like the female furies are sitting in a lobby in LA, <laughs> like whatever. We're just gonna sit here in our costumes. Like Matt Harriet's gonna graffiti on the wall. Who cares? Like yeah. Who that's cares? perfect. That's so mundane and so you know slice of life. Or it does feel like a comedy, even though it's like they could have just given birth to like the Antichrist. Like that yeah. could have literally just happened. That too. But it's yeah. you know it's still goofy and weird and funny. The valet doesn't want to park for them. Big Barda's first name is oh Big. My God. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. And I just came from L.A., and I can see all of that happening. Oh, my God. I live in L.A. That's the other, like, this thing about <laughs> how, like, Tom King, I mean, Tom King was born in L.A., but he lives in, in D.C. now. But, like, he always will say, you know, in interviews, like, this is his love letter to L.A. and everything. And, like, my God, there's so many, like, just little things from, like, yep. Like, oh, God, parking and Olympic and going through, like, any sort of, like, valets that don't want to engage with you. Like, oh, God, yep, that's 100%. People wanting to take selfies on the street, just the way that, like, the places are laid out. Like, all of that. All of that is 100% authentic to the city. Oof. Well, that's good. But, yeah, these Scott and Barda are definitely known in their in their po- for their for the quality of their banter and they really yeah. do maintain that so well through the series. It's part of why people love them. Oh man, it's um, just, like I I am always fascinated too by the idea of weaving so much humor and so much overt humor into something that is like how do you how do you weave you know jokes and gags and visual gags and like all this fun banter into a book that starts with such a graphic suicide attempt like how do you not trivialize the stakes and the violence and you know the horror of what's going on when you're also you know having kind of punchline panels that are setting up to all these moments which is like I think that they walk that line so well because too far either direction it becomes 
you know, on one side, it becomes like a Greek tragedy. Like you don't want to, like you only have to read it to get through it. On the other side, it becomes like a total joke in which and like it trivializes everything and you don't want to take anything seriously. Like that's, that's a really dangerous line to ride. And I think so far, at least seven issues in, they've done a really good job, but I'm like, I'm always kind of like hoping that they're not going to step over. Like I'm always on the edge of my seat. Like, please don't do it. Please don't do it. Just ride this line. It's perfect. So right, right where you are. Mm. The sequence with a knife that Bernadette gives uh, Scott is just yeah. remarkable. Like, it really shows that they have an understanding of the female furies. Like, mm. I think that a lot of writers kind of treat them like they're all just the same. And right. it was a very limited glimpses we have of each one of them, like, no. He actually, they've actually realized each character as their own person and personality and, like, done these creations justice in those ways. And Bernadette's saying, as I said before, when we return to war, I will use it to kill you. And Scott's like, okay, because yep. he's really tired. <laughs> yep. It's just the most <laughs> bad thing ever. Oh, mm-hmm. God. Uh, and I'm okay with his name being Jacob as the baby. Like, they, they talk about it in terms of the Jacob's ladder. But it's also, yeah. like, goes back to the Bible thing. Um, right. Jacob, you know, uh, wrestled with an angel, and I think that there could be some specific biblical relevance to that. And I also appreciate that. So one of the things that they've been doing throughout each issue is having dialogue that comes straight from the original Mister Miracle comics, juxtaposed um, in the in the in the ends usually, generally in the ends of each issue, uh, juxtaposed mm-hmm. with the visuals. Um, and in the case of the, the having the baby one, they're like they're like it's the lump. Yeah, you know, it was such a great play on like the battle of the id and the baby as the id and the fighting the lump in the realm of the id is like one of the issues the original Mister Miracle series and um it it, what a great parallel they 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 found there I would just say like I mean it's yeah that that moment made me like space but yeah. Yeah, but, oh, that moment like made me put the book down and be like, no fucking way. <laughs> like they couldn't have pulled this off. There's no way that they could have made that joke that well and had it like just organically happen. This had to have been like the moment they pitched the book on or something. Like God, the baby is the lump. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Oh, that's so. It was one of my favorite. I think that's up to this point has been one of my favorite like moments so far. Is that like stinger? Just. The idea of, like, I don't like babies. So the idea of, like, actually, like, literally just saying the baby is this trap engineered to kind of ensnare you. It was so, I don't know. Maybe that's cynical of me, but. No, you're so right on, dude. Man, my God, thank you. (laughs) And, like, both Mitch and Tom are dads. Like, they, like, I don't know. It's a little dark to to think it that way, but, like. (laughs) I mean, that's like, that's so self-aware. The idea that like, here's this baby. It's also a trap. Okay. Join us next month. Like, uh, okay. I don't know. And so it's wild. I'm, I'm terrified of what's going to happen with this kid. I'm absolutely terrified. Yeah. I'm really invested. Um, I guess speaking of that, let's talk about the face of God, right? Because they talk about the baby. He's a new God, the new, a new, a new, new God. You know, there've been other younger new 
young new gods created before as well. But this mm-hmm. particular circumstance in this time and place where it's happening, we know that the new gods have lost a lot of people in this most recent war, if in fact it's actually a thing that's happening. A constant point of dialogue um, in, quote, jokes, quote, that are told in the past uh, in, on Earth and in lots of dialogue is just the question about what is the face of God? I yeah. Think it's a, yeah. Um, I don't know. That's one of like the most challenging things about the book to me is like this idea that like, can you know things that are inherently unknowable? You know, like, can you escape from traps that are inherently inescapable? Like, is escaping one trap getting you into another one? Is living a trap? Is love a trap? Like, it's these, you know, these unanswerable questions. And I feel like knowing the face of God or like knowing this unknowable thing kind of manifests that and articulates that in a really like, literal and you know physical way where you know like you can if you know someone's face you can describe it you can draw it you can you know like you can look at it but what if that is something that you can't do like what if you take away that sort of like corporeal form of this thing that should be so physical and and try to talk about it anyway it's you know like I feel like that kind of articulates the whole thesis of the of the book in a weird way but in like a I don't know I'm not a I'm not a religious person I don't know spirituality all that well Mm -hmm. so it's hard for me to it's hard for me to talk about it extensively, but it's, you know, it's something that I always like to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, I can talk a little bit about the spiritual yeah. stuff from, from my experience, but, you know, I, I think I, I go back to issue one in this, this whole idea of, you know, him trying to commit suicide. And maybe that's why his psyche to me is fractured. But I think that there, there's always that saying that when you're that close to death, you know what I mean? You have a different mm-hmm. perspective. You know what I mean? And maybe this whole idea of him escaping death is what led him to seeing the face of God. You know? Mm. Um, and I think that, what does that mean? I mean, death is the one thing he either has or has not escaped. Um, mm-hmm. And that face could that face could be dark side. You know, mm-hmm. and does that mean that dark side is the God that he is referring to or thinking about? Um, what does that mean? But I think it's connected to death for him. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and again, assuming that Orion has, you know, passed and now he's the high father, um, he only saw death when he saw what happened to Orion. I mean, he only saw the face of God when he saw that happen to Orion. I mean, he didn't see it when other people were killed in front of him, but I think that that was very, um, it affected him a lot to that point mm-hmm. where, you know, he didn't get a chance to talk to his brother. He didn't get a chance to tell him how he feel. Who knows what he would have said. Um, but in that moment was so shocking that he saw this face, which is probably dark side. So mm. um, I think it's definitely connected to death. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I think that, I mean, the anti-life equation is such a big portion of, you know, like kind of New God's mythology and this idea that like, yeah. well, maybe Orion wasn't really Orion at that point like maybe he was you right. know maybe seeing because like you know the anti-life equation when you say it out loud it just sounds like you're talking about like a literal equation but like the idea that like you there are these things that you can't know and you can't you know manifest in any sort of way but what mm-hmm. if it's actually written on a person like what if it like what if mm-hmm. a person becomes that thing in a specific like in a specific moment that is supposed to be you know I guess kind of private if you would consider death to be a private thing, what if you like seeing that moment also, you know, kind of opens the door 
I don't know, maybe, maybe the face of God has something to do with the, with the anti-life equation as well or something. I don't know. It's, it's That's actually a very good point. That's a very yeah. good point. Yeah. And one of the other things, right, is that they are the new, they are new gods. Mm-hmm. It's complicated because, you know, Jack Kirby designed these characters and as Jews, like we're not supposed to draw God. We're allowed right. to draw other people's gods because those aren't real gods, but we're not allowed to right. draw like the actual God who is one, you know? Sure. Uh, so I have to think about like, you know, it, these are gods that exist in sort of a mythological context and they spend a lot of time talking about the gods of earth here. They, they, mm-hmm. they talk about Christmas, yeah. which is certainly not something yeah. that would exist on Apocalypse or New Genesis. I mean, Big right. Barda and Mr. Miracle are the most Americanized um, new gods characters, sure. right? Like, they've been here forever. So mm-hmm. I, it doesn't surprise me that they think about these things. But there's a weird sort of juxtaposition between them talking about um, these human and earth terms for, for God and right. the fact that they themselves are also gods. And, like, that's in their name. Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, especially when you kind of look at all of Kirby's work as the sort of response to the things that he lived through in his life, you know, just like I, I like to come to my like Kirby analysis because I'm, I'm a World War II history nerd and like I love like war comics, especially and their relationship to, to like superheroes. And this idea mm-hmm. that like Kirby lived through this horrible trauma of you know like being like literally active duty as a scout in world war ii front lines like going through it and then had to come home and deal with it and i think you can really see that especially like you can see it in a lot of his work i mean obviously he literally does comics about the war like you can find it really obviously but when you also look at you know his more super heroic work and especially the fourth world looking at these sort of big Mm -hmm philosophical questions about you know like how do you find meaning in something that inherently feels meaningless like how do you how do you find purpose in something that feels like it was designed just to be horrible you know like how do you how do you live with yourself after you kind of experience these things and I think you know like when you're put through something like that when you're you know forced to undergo this sort of like mass trauma that is really only shared, you know, among like a small group of people, like, how do you, how do you articulate that in a way that like makes sense to people who are outside of your experience? Like, how do you make that apparent? And I think that in this sense, because I mean, Tom King was also, you know, not in the military, but he was CIA. He was, he's been involved in, you know, all sorts of horrible traumatic events, at least, you know, that's what, from what we can assume if you read, you know, Sheriff of Babylon or anything like that. Like, I think that that's, you know, coming to, like, this sort of, like, the question of, like, well, what's the face of God? You know, it's, it's also about, you know, trying to, like, articulate and, and express these things that you've gone through for people who will never experience what you've experienced. You know, like, you, there's no way you can go back and, like, live through World War II. There's no way you can go back and live through, like, immediately post-9-11, like, wars. You can't do it. Like, there's no way you can, like, unless you weren't there. Like you have to figure out a way to talk about that. And I think that knowing the face of God is a really great way to kind of manifest that question. I don't know. Again, that, that might not make any sense, but that's no, I kind think of what I've been looking at. I think it does. Um, what, 
Uh, yeah. I mean, what do you think about the repetition of the phrase dark side is? I, I like that the mm. comic itself even jokes about, like, why are people always saying dark side is? I think it's just to sound cool. Do you think mm. it's just to sound cool? What, what, what do you think is the significance of it? It just it's it's funny because I the first couple of comics I'm like what is this like this is driving me nuts but I think <laughs> as we as it got um, more in as I got more into it I realized that you know I I, I feel the phrase like dark side is like he just is he's mm-hmm. there he is or again if we're asking this question about the face of God dark side is mm-hmm. you know so it, it it could be that as well. So um, I didn't think it was something that was just it, – it's there for a reason, and I have a mm-hmm. feeling we're going to – it's just another riddle in this book. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just another trap that we need to right. figure out. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's very significant, and he places it very, very well. Yeah, I think – I mean, I think when you say dark side is, it's just like saying, like, death is coming. Like, yeah. you know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's about inevitability. Like, there's just no – like dark side is never not going to exist. Like he is, he is the ultimate end. He's the ultimate final boss of, you know, of Scott's story, but of like everybody's story, really. Like it's, if dark side represents death, then like, what are you going to do? Like, you can't, you can't fight that. You can't, you know, pull your big hero shit and just kind of outmaneuver him. Like he just is, he just exists. And that's a reality you kind of have to come to, especially when you're, you know, directly involved with his story you know, in the context of the DCU and in the context of, like, the pantheon of new gods, like, it's, you know, it's, well, I, I and, like, it's in, in a weird way, it's, like, an anti-Hakuna Matata, like, phrase, like, it's, like, the totally opposite of, like, you know, like, no worries, it's, like, well, you've always got something to worry about, and it's this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's that evil, evil just exists, and it's going right. to kind of be a presence and peep up over the bend. Yeah. Regardless of how we try to to live our lives, I think is I think it's sort of where they're going at it. Yeah. Um, well, we're rounding up on the hour, which breaks my heart because I could actually keep talking about this with you guys for a very long time. Yeah, um, this has been fun. But um, oh, actually, we have a little bit, a little flexibility. This is good. But I know we're going to wrap up soon, but not entirely, entirely done. Um, are there things that uh, about the series, Tony, that you as someone who is kind of coming at this from a newer perspective that like you just are, are, are find like challenging um, are, are, are there things that are, are harder to approach that you think maybe are, you like what should a new what should a new person be thinking about coming into reading this? Um, I honestly don't find anything challenging. I think what a new person may find challenging is who the different people are. And I, I kind of had a, a passing reference to the to yeah. who the new gods were. So none of, none I hadn't seen a face where I was like, well, who the hell is that? Um, I, um, you know, I knew who Oberon was. I knew all that. So I think that going yeah. into this, it's probably essential that you have at least a passing knowledge of what you're, mm-hmm. you, what you're, what you should be reading. So I didn't have any challenges. Um, and, and for me, I, I really love complicated stories because I don't think I read those enough, particularly in comic mm-hmm. books. Um, and honestly, and, and I don't know if this is good or bad, but I, I get a Watchmen feel when I read this book uh, mm-hmm. of, of this 
where are we going next and the, and the way the narrative is laid out. Um, so if, if for those who may not really be ready for complicated mind-bending stories, this might be a challenge for them. You know, I mm-hmm. think some people go into comic books just really wanting something that's just not very thoughtful. And I, I don't mean to say that in a bad way, but, you know, people use comic books as an escape and maybe they just sure. want to see, you know, com- just action and not have to think much about it. But this is a book that you're really going to have to think and really have to figure out, again, what, what the end game is. And I, and I love that. Mm-hmm. I would definitely agree. I mean, I'm I'm not coming to Mr. Miracle from like a new comics perspective, but every time I've recommended it to someone who, you know, isn't really super familiar with comics, you always kind of have to hedge it a little bit because it's it's a, it's challenging. It kind of expects you to understand the lexicon yeah. of yeah. comics. And so if you're yeah. picking it up as a, someone who's maybe only read a couple comics in your life and has not really, you know, experienced that sort of like, oh, well, you know, this nine panel grid is, you know, every moment in the page is a different hour or a different moment. But in this nine panel grid, all the panels are happening simultaneously. Or like, or in this yeah. nine panel grid, here's, you know, like this deviation kind of signifies this significance. And it's, you know, like that's a little, it's a, it's a vocabulary. You kind of have to get mm-hmm. your head wrapped around. Um, and so for new readers, I always try to, you know, kind of case it a little bit and say that like, oh, well, you know, you might have to read it a little slow or you might have to read it, you know, kind of twice, but I think it's really worth it, right. which is, right. you know, right. it's whether or not they want to get their, the worth out of it is the tricky part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think like, you know, Tom King artists he chooses to work with, you know, this isn't the first comic where he's worked with somebody that had a really strong nine panel grid focus. I mean, this has been the mm-hmm. most, yeah. possibly the most like dedicated to just doing that. But, right. you know, I, I sometimes wonder if people use it as a shorthand uh, for like, this is serious, but not formalistically explorative. Yeah. Uh, but like, but I appreciate the density of this. And I definitely think like, this is one comic that like, you need to read it at full size. Like you can't just read yeah. this on your cell phone. Like I tried to do it at one point because I was like on the subway and I couldn't even like lift my hand. And I, right. I went back and I had to reread it, the whole thing again. Like you need to be able to look at that detail you need to have enough space to be look to, to, to be reading it. It's not something you can look at small because of the amount of detail right. and because there's mm-hmm. so many right. panels that are so similar to each other with only the slightest changes, and right. the changes yep. are significant. It's such a freaking detail laden, detail laden comic. Yeah. Um, Actually, this is this is really interesting. But like, um, I was I was interviewing uh, Mitch Garads at, at Emerald City or something, and I turned my recorder off, so I didn't actually like this is like me leading me to the door. But I was asking, you know, those pages that are in the book that have like little white little dots, like like little like hash marks of like, oh well, they're you know like they're weaving around here, like to signify motion, like you know like they're like sneaking through the camp, and it'll mm-hmm. be like the little like white tick marks. And I was like, what are those about? Why are those a thing? And he was explaining that, like, he, he pulled inspiration for, for the art and the story from old, like, newspaper comics because he wanted to kind of evoke things that were of the era of Kirby that weren't mm-hmm. Kirby's work and weren't actually influenced, you know, like, they weren't, like, superhero comics and they weren't, you know, Marvel or DC. And so he's like, those are, like, family circus details because that was mm-hmm. the era for mm-hmm. family circus and everything. And I'm like, that's really wild. That's totally wow. wild. But, like, that's, you know, that's something that it enhances your experience of the comic. But, like, people who are not excited about comics probably aren't going to care about that at all, you know. 
But it's, you know, like that's sort of, if you're looking at, you know, Bronze Age comics, like where you can't really go far in the Bronze Age without finding things that are kind of derivative of Kirby's work. So where are you going to go? Right. But he's there. Right. Circus. <laughs> okay. Like, huh. that's right. wild. That's yeah. an interesting choice. Yeah. That's an interesting choice. I, I, I also, I tend to be really critical of the way artists who aren't, like, like close followers of Jack Kirby, like the way someone like Walt Simonson is like a close follower of Jack Kirby. Sure. I, I'm often very critical of the way that very un-Kirby aesthetic related people will draw the most Kirby-esque of costumes. And um, Mitch has really done a miracle by like me being like, yes, these are fine. Because I like don't yeah. think that about very, very many people. Um, sure. You know, I, there's something about the there's something about the line that even though it isn't like the 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 really sharp high contrast almost cubist look that I'm still okay with it I'm like almost never okay with it but he's managed <laughs> to make me be okay with it um, yeah. and, and, and I and to like it but partially like I mean the facial expressions the way Scott looks haggard he's like haggard and tired and so handsome but doesn't you know it's just so fucking sensitive with the faces. Bar yeah. and the weight with her face. I mean, it's just amazing detail art on here, and I don't feel like enough people are talking about it. So I think it's. I'm yeah. really glad that we've made a point to do so on this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is doing incredible. It just. It, it, the, I like the, how the humor he wouldn't land to, without it. Yeah. Right. I, I like the way he seems to wear a different Justice League shirt, like it's Batman yes. or Superman or. You know, and I, and I also, I will, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but when she was giving birth, there were the wavelengths, and it had like it was like a, it was specifically in a W, and I'm like, did he do that on purpose? Yeah. Um, wow. And then there was the know, omega so was just, symbol in there too. Yeah. Like the, yeah. the heart monitor yeah. for the omega symbol too. I was like, whoa. Ah. Yeah. Little details. I'm gonna love to purchase this via graphic novel. That I will tell you that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm so glad that they're they're holding off to do to release it just as a 12 issue like hardcover. Like they're not doing yeah. two volumes; it's just going to be a 12 issue. Like here's the omnibus; it's good to go. And I think that that's so smart. Okay, interesting, interesting. Yeah. So, do you guys feel strongly? Do either of you guys feel strongly about like what do you what where do you think this is? Is Scott in purgatory? Is this the afterlife? Oh. Is he just having PTSD? I feel like if you, you, you don't have to answer this question if you're like, oh, let's just see where it goes. But if you have strong feelings about these matters, it sounds, Tony, like you might have, have a particular take on what's happening that you would want to share. Yeah, I feel like he's, he's, he's living, he, he's going through something. And, and I think a lot of it is, is mental. Um, and that could be that he's, getting, that he's getting jerked around, too. It could be that as well. But... Um, I, my mind might change because I wasn't expecting her to have a baby, so mm. I think that that mm. that changes things a little bit. Unless the, him having a child changes the way he starts thinking, or may or maybe he looks at things differently, or you know, maybe the baby is the anti anti life equation. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. And it just, I think it'll be very. It's going to be very interesting, and I wouldn't be surprised if if his mental uh, thoughts or the way things are drawn are different because of of the lump. To be quite honest with you, right? Mm. I 
I'm very much of two minds of this whole thing. Because, like, when I was originally reading, you know, like, kind of want to, the first time through reading the first six issues, I haven't reread seven yet, but, like, the first time through the first six, I was very hesitant to be, like, I don't want this to be, I don't want this to be, like, a Citizen Kane moment. Like, I don't want it to be, like, right. you know, like, oh, well, here's the puzzle to be solved. Or, like, and I don't want it to be, like, oh, it was all, you know, he was reminiscing and he's actually, you know, sitting <laughs> on a hospital bed or whatever. But oh, like, my gosh. Like, right. I don't want that. Like, I don't, I definitely don't right. want that. But I also, I don't know if I want it to be real. And so it puts right. me in a really weird position because I don't want this yeah. to be for nothing. And I don't want it to be like a gimmick that kind of wraps up at the end. I want it to have, you know, consequence and I want it to have import. However, I don't want Orion to be dead. I don't want Granny to be gone forever. Like, I don't want, I don't want these horrible things to have really happened and to not have any weight to them, you know? Like, it's very, mm-hmm. it, it's, it, it's put me in a really complicated spot. And so I'm always nervous about, like, I'm excited, but I'm anxious about whatever is going to happen next. Because I don't know, right. I don't know how this is going to be reconciled with the rest of the DCU. Right. And I think that it should right. definitely be reconciled with the rest of the DCU. I mean, there's a whole bug comic that's been going that I have amazing, I know. flawless, yeah. like all that art. Well, you know, like, I mean, I think I sort of been, I'll just say, like, to me, like, I, I would rather Orion be dead than Orion be fascist, because if he dies a hero, <laughs> then, like, that's legitimate. But if he, like, right. is fascist, then I think that's an insult to the philosophy of Jack Kirby. But that said, do I have an opinion on whether this is, the trauma that he's experiencing in his head, or is he in purgatory? Is dark? Is the anti-life equation warping how the world is structured, like, and how people are experiencing it? I, I don't know. I'm. Sh- I feel like it's going to be something. We'll see what it is. I'm. I'm. I'm here to continue, you know, and, and see where they go with that. Right. Um, I, I. I. It'll be worth my while to see. And uh, if I have to write a political essay at the end of the day about being angry, then I'll do it. But uh, for now, I'm. Um, it's definitely worthy art. And it is worthy of of your consideration. And I've I've cried, I've laughed. You know, like so many damn feelings. And I feel like we could. Yeah. We've hardly had an opportunity to talk about how much we love Barda. But I think it can be safely said everybody loves Barda. She's the greatest freaking character. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yep. Like nobody else has that voice, and right. nobody else has that sort of physical presence in a comic. Um, and I think she's the most heroic because she's the person who just out of out of love defected from you know and and, and came to Earth and but and you see her complete like devotion to Scott in ways that are not that are that are strong and it's not like oh right. I just need my husband it's like no this is like the most powerful love and right um, right right. So it kills me that we have to wrap, but apparently we have to go to places or something, whatever, whatever. (sighs) So um, (laughs) tell our listeners where we can find each of you guys on the internet. And if you have anything big coming out uh, where they can find it, Tony, where, where are you on the internet? Where, where can your work be found? Well, um, first you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram um, and sometimes Tumblr when I decide to use it as uh, (laughs) at Latin Negro. Um, And as far as my work, um, you can go to my website. It is anthonyotero.com. Or, again, I have links that go from any of my social media pages. Uh, at the moment, um, both my books are on Amazon. I would just search under my name. Um, and Puerto Rico Strong is currently being sold at Amazon, and they're in comic book stores, and I believe bookstores as of last week. So, yeah. Nice. Awesome. 
Yes, it is out now. Definitely get it, guys. It's really, really great and a great cause. And Meg, where, where can folks find you on the internet? Um, well, I am primarily on Twitter. It's at Rusty Polished, which is like R-U-S-T-Y and then polished in the past tense. Um, and then my work, I'm a freelancer and I'm really hardcore living that freelance lifestyle. So I'm kind of everywhere. Um, you can find me typically um, at DC's website. I do a monthly column about relationships in the DCU. And I also write about every issue of Mr. Miracle as they come out. So that usually happens on the Thursday or Friday after the, the issue drops. Um, so you can look for me there. And then otherwise I'm on CBR and GameSpot and sometimes places like THR and Polygon and just kind of wherever the wind takes me because that's what freelancers do. Um, but yeah, it has been so, so nice and folks to talk to you guys. And yeah. Thanks. And, and folks should subscribe to Boy Problems podcast for that way you can listen to the yes. old episodes and when new ones come back, you'll have those as well. Yes, yes. Uh, hopefully soon. I'm very, very hopeful that it will happen uh, relatively soon once I get my schedule situated. But Boy Problems is not dead. It's just kind of napping for right now. It's just <laughs> having some problems. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you guys again. And um, this has been Graphic Policy Radio. If you came to the episode late, you can go back and listen to the whole darn thing. We are going to be on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, all under Graphic Policy. Uh, the episode will be up um, probably in the next couple hours. It will be available on those, on those web platforms. And you will be able to share it, listen to it, download it, etc. cetera. Um, I'm Ilana Levin, also Ilana Brooklyn, Ilana underscore Brooklyn on Twitter. All the damn time, I should really stop. Uh, I wrote up a re- really a review of Mr. Miracle issue one that I'm quite proud of a graphic policy that you can take a look at a while back. And I've also written about um, forever people and other fourth world comics. If you look me up, you'll see those graphic policies at graphicpolicy.com and on Twitter and Tumblr and iTunes. We like to keep it simple. Um, on Monday, uh, we are not going to be taping an episode because it's Passover and it's also awesome con. Um, I hope folks will come to my two of panels that I have at awesome con in DC this upcoming weekend. I have one on geek activism, and another one is a panel on geeks and nonprofits working together to save the world. So check out my Twitter. I'll be posting links to those panels. See you guys at AwesomeCon in D.C. And um, like we like to say at Graphic Policy Radio, keep it geeky.